we all have social identities that we care deeply about. Our social identities are derived from the groups we belong to and that we are invested in belonging to. And when we feel something about that group is being threatened or critiqued in some way, it affects us. Like that identity feels personal, that threat feels personal. So social identity is a really big part of this. And an easy connection to social identity is nostalgia, the sort of sentimental version of that group's history that we've become very close to and emotionally connected to. We're very invested in nostalgia, whether it's about our organization and its roots and its traditions and its rituals and its heroes, or whether it's about our country. And so that nostalgia is something we do try to guard against. When the nostalgia is sort of fact-checked, if you will, the social identities we hold really do get threatened. I write in the book about belief grief which is a phrase I came up with to describe the emotions I feel. It's strange to say that you could grieve the loss of a thought, but I really believe it's true. It's not the same, of course, as grieving the loss of a human in our lives, but that thought, that belief has become part of the identity we hold. It's often tied to that social identity we value. And I know, for example, when I took my kids on that trip in there was so much I wanted to be true about our country that I would have had to grieve in order to tell my kids the fuller story. Now, keep in mind, my kids had less to grieve, right? Because I had to unlearn things. That's where the belief grief came. For them, they were just learning. So there's research that's been done that says it's easier for kids to learn something the right way than unlearn it later. And so I thought I was sort of doing them a favor and protecting them. But in fact, what I was doing is setting them up for belief grief down the road as well. Welcome back, everybody. It has been a little while since we had our last episode of The Fix. As you all probably know, I've taken an extended break from the podcast because I've been working on my second book and I've also just finished my PhD. My second book will be out next September and it really looks at the skills you need to thrive in the future world of work. The Fix is now going into its fourth year and I just really wanted to thank all of you who've been a part of our journey. I've spent the time during the break really thinking about how I can bring you some of the most helpful action-oriented content. So we are going to be investing in building toolkits, resources, and guides you can use to take action from every episode and continue the conversation beyond the podcast. We have an incredible season coming up with authors, thought leaders, innovators, experts who will all be sharing insights into how to build workplaces that work for everybody. So with a warm welcome back from Michelle and from me, let's get started with today's episode where we're so excited to feature our guest, Professor Dolly Chug. Dolly is an award-winning psychologist and the Jacob B. Melnick Term Professor at the Stern School of Business at New York University. She studies how and why most of us, however well-intended we are, we're still prone to race and gender bias. In Dolly's brand new book, A More Just Future, which is hot off the press, she shares with us the psychological tools that we need to confront the whitewashing of our history so that we can build forward better. One definition of whitewashing is to deliberately attempt to conceal unpleasant or incriminating facts about someone or something. 
Another is an attempt to stop people finding out the true facts about a situation. We'll look at some other interpretations of the term whitewashing a little bit later, but however we define it, the challenges of whitewashing history can be found all over the world. In America with slavery, in Great Britain with colonialism, and in Australia and New Zealand with the injustice between colonists and indigenous populations. As humans, we have this tendency to whitewash our histories to make them more palatable. Here Dolly shares her personal journey in confronting whitewashing. I took my kids on a trip to the Midwestern United States to immerse ourselves in the stories of the Little House on the Prairie series that I had read to them for a full year. Every night we had lived with the Ingalls family and really felt a closeness to these very real people and Laura Ingalls Wilder, who wrote the books about her family. And on this vacation that we were on, where we were as parents taking all sorts of like very smug parenting credit for an educational vacation and all this, I could feel this like little pinch that there was more to this story than we were sharing with our kids. But I just couldn't quite emotionally figure out how to think about the colonizing of the land the genocide of the Native Americans that were there before the Ingalls family, not them specifically, it's not a critique of them specifically, but as part of the colonizing force of the land, took over that land, took away those cultures, and led to many lives lost. I just couldn't figure out how to deal with it emotionally, so I just didn't. And I didn't like give my kids a fuller version of the story. And then the years since then, I've just really wondered, was there a way I could have done that better, that I could have coped with it better? I could have helped my kids cope with it better in an age-appropriate way. And then once you start thinking about something, you start noticing it everywhere. And I've just noticed a lot of things in American history that have been tough for me to cope with. And I think it's true for the histories of a lot of countries. I think there's different layers of this whitewashing. There's the layer that feels very blatant and let's yank the books off the shelves. There's another layer of it, I think, that's more subtle and more widely accepted, and that's creating fables that feel comfortable. And I think the Little House on the Prairie fable is one of those. It's sort of part of the story, or it's a very sanitized version of a story. And so I would say both are dangerous, right? That sort of blatant yank, let's just remove things version, as well as the sanitizing, fabling version of it. So the first known use of the term whitewashing was in 1591 in the United Kingdom, where people used the term to refer to the cheap white paint or coating of chalk lime that was used to quickly give a uniform, clean appearance to a wide variety of surfaces. Whitewashing is also used to refer to cultural appropriation. From a historical perspective, whitewashing is really the centering of white supremacist perspectives and the retelling of historical narratives and ignoring or denying or silencing historically accurate truths. White people simply sanitize history. We whitewash it to make it more palatable. We may not even realise that racial and ethnic minorities have been written out of their own narratives. For example, Jesus, Moses and other biblical heroes are all born in the Middle East, and yet they're usually depicted in paintings, movies and other media as being white, 
with blue eyes. Here Dolly shares three red flags we all need to be aware of when it comes to whitewashing history. There's three red flags that I like to look for in detecting a racial fable. One is when it appears that there's just a very clear cause and effect to something, that it's just linear and kind of Hollywood simple and how it all works out. That's usually a sign that the story is more complex because as we all know, life often doesn't have one thing lead to another thing, particularly when we're talking about big changes in society. It's rarely that clear. The second thing I look for in Rachel Fables is a flawless hero, a hero who is sort of got this like moral perfection to them and who always had clarity on what was right. That's usually a sign that we've sanitized someone's humanity, made them sort of three-dimensional, like flattened into a character that you would find in a fable. And then the third red flag I look for is good guys beat bad guys always. This is a really clear sign that we're dealing with a fable because the reality is when we look at, for example, in United States history and the civil rights movement, The civil rights movement is often referred to as sort of mid to late 60s when Dr. Martin Luther King was in a visible role. And that in the sanitized version, the fable version, he said, you know, there's some things we could do a little better. And then the majority of Americans said, you're right, let's jump in and let's fix it. That version excludes the reality that there were decades, there were centuries of efforts to make these changes that were met with widespread resistance. That in fact, even in the mid to late 60s, Dr. Martin Luther King was viewed by the majority of white Americans as moving too fast, as being a radical. And so the good guys beats bad guys scenario, on the one hand, it's problematic just because it sort of cleanly puts people in a good guys, bad guys motif, and because it ignores the many attempts in which that didn't happen, in which the efforts for change were met with so much resistance that they weren't successful. So fables often are characterized by these three things, overly simplistic, clear cause and effect, flawless heroes, and good guys beating bad guys each and every time. I was writing a column for Forbes.com a couple of years ago, and one of the issues I wrote focused on Rosa Parks and that she's a good example of a racial fable. She's described as this elderly, tired seamstress who became an accidental activist. First of all, she was 42 years old. Secondly, she had a very well-documented, long life as an activist that had begun when she was a child and continued in the many hours she put in on a weekly basis volunteering for the NAACP. So there was nothing accidental about what happened on that particular day. In the column that I wrote for Forbes, I talked about the problem with thinking of her as an accidental activist is that we then dismiss the real activists. We sort of look at the person in our meeting who's saying, you know, I think our hiring practices are more exclusionary than we intend for them to be. Or we label someone as a troublemaker because they keep bringing up these issues of racism or sexism in the workplace. And we're like, you know, we don't need that kind of negative divisive energy in the workplace. And we dismiss them 
rather than recognize how important their efforts are. We are looking for a Rosa Parks when there is no Rosa Parks. That isn't how change happens. The fable misleads us and it leads us to demonize those who are doing the same work she was. Wherever you are in the world, it can be really difficult to confront your own country's history with an open mind. Most of us want to be proud of where we come from. After all, where we come from is a really big part of our own identity. So this desire to focus on the best of that history is not really that surprising. We saw this when the Queen died here recently in the United Kingdom. Many people deeply mourned her death while still having to confront the history of the atrocities of the colonial empire that the monarchy represent. Here Dolly shares why it can be so difficult to confront the truth when it comes to our past. We all have social identities that we care deeply about. Our social identities are derived from the groups we belong to and that we are invested in belonging to. And when we feel something about that group is being threatened or critiqued in some way, it affects us. Like that identity feels personal, that threat feels personal. So social identity is a really big part of this. And an easy connection to social identity is nostalgia, the sort of sentimental version of that group's history that we've become very close to and emotionally connected to. We're very invested in nostalgia, whether it's about our organization and its roots and its traditions and its rituals and its heroes, or whether it's about our country. So that nostalgia is something we do try to guard against. When the nostalgia is sort of fact-checked, if you will, the social identities we hold really do get threatened. I write in the book about belief grief, which is a phrase I came up with to describe the emotions I feel. It's strange to say that you could grieve the loss of a thought, but I really believe it's true. It's not the same, of course, as grieving the loss of a human in our lives, but that thought, that belief has become part of the identity we hold. It's often tied to that social identity we value. And I know, for example, when I took my kids on that trip and There was so much I wanted to be true about our country that I would have had to grieve in order to tell my kids the fuller story. Now, keep in mind, my kids had less to grieve, right? Because I had to unlearn things. That's where the belief grief came. For them, they were just learning. So there's research that's been done that says it's easier for kids to learn something the right way than unlearn it later. And so I thought I was sort of doing them a favor and protecting them. But in fact, what I was doing is setting them up for belief grief down the road as well. One of the challenges with confronting our past is feeling like we're being unpatriotic to call out the racism, sexism, homophobia, classism, ableism, and all the other isms. But being a good patriot is recognizing that confronting issues like slavery and racism in the history of your country is really the first step to tackling them. Owning our past is how we step into a more equitable and inclusive future. I really feel that in such a sincere way, the way you described this royalist dilemma, we'll call it. I think the Patriot's Dilemma sort of weaves together everything we've been talking about. It's our desire for consistency, our sort of craving for these simple fables, our resistance to sort of belief grief. It all comes together in the form of the Patriot's Dilemma, which I define as the more we sort of love 
in a sort of simplistic way, our country, our monarchy, the more we love that, the harder it is for us to think about how to make it better. One of the metaphors I've found useful in talking to people about this is for people who are parents, they can relate to the idea of the disservice they do their children if they can only see them as flawless, if they can only see the Instagrammed version of their children. That doesn't do the children any good. It doesn't do the parent any good. It leaves us in this like very fragile state where there's not much like flex to grow. And the same is true for our country. The same is true for what you're describing as a royalist, that if we can only see it in this brittle way, then we can't adapt it for the future. We can't take what we've learned from what didn't work in the past. We can't look for ways to be goodish, which I wrote about in my first book, which is a state of being in growth as opposed to being fixed. I think we give up a lot. We think we're gaining by doing that, that we're sort of holding on to something, but we're actually giving up so much. In Dolly's new book, A More Just Future, she shares how whitewashing permeates the textbooks, museums, monuments, and narratives that make up much of the United States educational system creating a gaping disparity in the stories that get to be told and by whom. Dolly argues that if we close our eyes to history as she once did, we cannot make the systemic changes needed to mend the inequality that exists today. Dolly's book outlines seven psychological tools that you can use to overcome whitewashing. Here she summarizes some of the key practices that you can use. I think part of it is just seeing that there's a problem. There's seven tools I offer in my book. And the first one is just first and foremost, recognizing that there is work to be done in unpacking the narratives we've breathed in our entire lives about the past. So that's the first one is just seeing that there is a problem. The second one is what I call dressing for the weather. You can have the best day ever or the worst day ever, depending on whether you were able to pack the right layers and bring the umbrella for an outing. And similarly, we want to be emotionally prepared for some curveballs, for some emotions that might show up as shame or guilt or disbelief or anger. Like we stick with the Rosa Parks story. There might be a sense of that can't be true. How would I not know that if it were true? And that leads to this sort of insecurity in us. So dressing for the weather is just being ready for that. It's okay. It's going to happen. We're going to write it out. We don't need to turn around and go home. We don't need to declare this the worst day ever. We just need to put on that layer and keep going. Beyond that, the tools are about actually how we engage with the work. We just talked about rejecting racial fables. Another one I really love is the work of Wendy Smith and her colleagues on embracing a paradox mindset. This one's amazing because it becomes a game in terms of things you can do on a daily basis of look for the paradox. See how many you know paradox points you can gather up in a day. A paradox shows up in the form of contradiction. Our minds don't love contradictions. We like to sort of smooth over contradictions and find the consistency. But if you take, for example, the United States, the forefathers of our country wrote amazing documents based extraordinary odds, showed incredible vision, centered on equality and liberty and independence, and they enslaved other humans while they did it. They engaged in human trafficking. They 
tortured people. I mean, that's the ultimate paradox. And our minds, when I, even as I said those words, I wanted to somehow like smooth out the edges of it. What the research on a paradox mindset says in that moment, if we can just allow both to be true, we don't have to solve the puzzle. Just allow both to be true. It unleashes a tremendous amount of resilience and creativity in how we think. When we think about allyship, so on the one hand, we tell allies you need to center the voices of those directly affected by issues and by biases. And on the other hand, we say, allies, you need to use your voices. You need to not be silent. It creates a little bit of attention. And there's a lot of paradoxes like that that I think allies have to allow to be true. Both things need to be true, that if you try to resolve it, you'll end up instead of walking the tightrope, just falling off it and not moving forward. And so I love the idea of thinking about DEI paradoxes in the workplace. In our wonderful conversation with Dolly, she shared specific actions that people can take to engage with the paradoxes that exist so we can avoid getting stuck and instead keep moving forward to a more equitable future. First, Dolly says it's important to think about whatever media you consume whether it's social media, books, podcasts, movies, music, video games, we can each review the content we've consumed, say, over the last week and evaluate how much similarity there was in the voices that were centred and in the creator's voices as well. And we can also reflect on how similar were those voices to our own. I like to think of this as a bit like an echo chamber audit. The second action builds on this audit, and that's to think about how you might broaden and diversify that content. Dolly points out that simply by adding more diversity to the information we consume, we'll hear perspectives about the past and the present that are new. This alone, she believes, will set us on the path of being able to be more attuned to situations where we may be consuming those racial fables or even perpetuating them ourselves. And finally, and this one is a real game changer, I think, we can really try to notice the paradoxes where they exist and hold space for conflicting ideas, realities, and perspectives to be true at the same time. In my work with clients, we're often confronting together the reality that DEI is full of paradoxes. One being that one person can experience work and the workplace as a meritocracy, while another quite the opposite. Both experiences can exist in parallel without canceling the truth of each other out. The game changer is being able to understand what creates those different realities and how the gap can be closed in the future. The more we can accept paradoxes with an open mind, then the more we can understand how inequalities are created and perpetuated, and the better equipped we'll be to tackle them. I really hope you enjoyed our first episode of the season. Just a quick one before you go. If you love our podcast and you want more, then please hit subscribe now and leave a review wherever you get your podcast. Also, if you're interested in partnering with us or being a guest on the show, then reach out through our website, thefixpodcast.org. You can also sign up to our monthly newsletter and contribute your story there. Thanks again for tuning in, and I'll catch you all again next week.